From Semi-Pro Cycling, this is Ride Better Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, intervals. What is the optimal interval prescription in 2020? What does the latest science say? And does it change the way we've been doing intervals? Plus, foam rolling. In eight years after it first came up on the podcast, does a new review give us any scientific evidence to stop foam rolling? The science of fast. The science of fast. The segment of the show where it's 100% science and 100% fast. Well, this time, intervals, intervals, intervals. When I was 13 years old, there were two standard days I'd do. A 42-kilometer all-out ride around the lake near my house, or the ride to and from the steepest and longest hill near my house. This hill happened to be about 10 minutes long, and I'd do it once before turning back and riding the 15 kilometers home so I could get to school on time. In those days, even if I had the time, I never would have thought about riding up a second time, or probably couldn't even imagine it. But as I progressed through my cycling career, the hill climb became a training staple, especially this climb, Black Mountain. Something about the burn, the concentration of effort needed to stay on top of the gear and on top of the effort. Sometimes Black Mountain would win, but most of the time I would feel like I conquered mountains ten times the size. Riding up and down a hill seems like a crazy pursuit, but it's what we do. We break up the effort needed to complete an entire race, or any parts of a race, and we try and get through the work needed to ride harder than we thought possible. Not just because we don't always have a big enough or long enough hill to ride up, but because we hit the hill with intensity. Intensity that's hard to sustain for any longer than 10, 12, 15 minutes at a time. To spell it out, if you don't know, these efforts are called intervals. And doing hill repeats is only one small part of what intervals are, because as a whole, interval training is the cornerstone of successful cycling training. I use them in all my training programs, and I believe they are the most effective way to achieve great results. A review of the scientific literature on intervals done way back in 2002 says, increased volume for highly trained athletes does not appear to further enhance endurance performance or associated physiological variables. For athletes who are already trained, improvements in endurance can be achieved only through high-intensity interval training. Intensity here is the key factor in performance once you've built up a big engine over years of volume training. It's just a matter of knowing what intervals to do and when. Seems simple enough, hey? This is the art of coaching. It doesn't have to be complicated, just the right effort at the right time. So how do coaches come up with their intervals when variations include length, rest, intensity, reps, speed, heart rate, power, Every interval workout needs to precisely define at least some of these variables. Well, it depends on the coach. But for me, I use a mix of talking to other coaches, athletes, personal experience. And this is where I rely on scientific studies to guide my thinking around interval prescription decisions. That's going to be our focus for the rest of this segment. And as we say around here, show me the science. 
The interesting thing about the science world is that good science takes time. And even though intervals have been around for almost 100 years, and there have been good studies here and there, it was not until 2009 that there was a meta-analysis with convincing evidence from more than 50 studies. Note that these studies were looking at high-intensity interval training, so short and low-volume intervals to increase VO2 max. And from previous studies, we know that intervals with training time at equal to or greater than 90% of VO2 max can be a good criteria to judge the effectiveness of the training to improve aerobic fitness. And again, intervals that optimize about 90% of VO2 max only make up a small part of a training program to sharpen the base once you've already built that base over months and years. Or in other words, when you've raised the floor to the ceiling and it's time to raise the roof, So what does this meta-analysis say? To maximize the training effects on VO2 max, long intervals equal to or greater than two minutes, high volume equal to or greater than 15 minutes, and moderate to long term equal to or greater than four to 12 weeks of high intensity interval training are recommended. With a mixed bag of researchers from around the world used 53 studies of different protocols that pitted high-intensity training intervals against sweet spot threshold on VO2 max. Keep in mind, they didn't just look at athletic adults, but also healthy and overweight adults. So it's not a strictly elite population here. The change in VO2 max by high-intensity interval training varied by populations with a standardized mean difference of 0.41 to 1.81, so moderate to large changes in VO2 max because of the type of training. Basically, when compared to control groups, any type of interval worked, but the length and type I reported on earlier had significantly larger effects on VO2 max with a standardized mean difference of 0.50 to 2.48. And when these intervals were compared to sweet spot and threshold, only the long intervals showed benefits. That review doesn't tell the whole story though, because we can further investigate these findings to know your optimal interval prescription and to define optimum, how can you spend the longest time equal to or greater than 90% of VO2 max? So how long should the intervals be to maximize that time at VO2 max? And I've got to say, this is a tough one. It depends does not do it justice. There are so many individual factors here from not everybody can hit their VO2 max within 75% of efforts. There is a large difference in individual VO2 max and time to exhaustion. And there is also a large variation in time at VO2 max. And finally, the ability to hit VO2 max is reduced after the first interval. A good starting point is a total interval time that ranges from 14 to 30 minutes within a single session. This is achieved by four to seven intervals between two and five minutes. Rest here doesn't actually matter as much. Two minutes rest is usually enough for say a four minute interval, for example. And this usually gives equal to or greater than eight minutes at 90% of VO2 max. But how do you adjust your individual response? There is no easy answer here. I get around this with my athletes by firing up WKO5 and analyzing time spent above 90% of VO2 max in relation to the type of intervals that have been done and make adjustments for the next session from that information. An interesting note here is that slightly reducing the intensity can help the athletes stay at VO2 max over repeated long intervals. 
To confuse you even more, it's hard to talk about insoles without mentioning the work of... If you've ever done a 30-15 interval session, you can thank this guy. In 2015, a paper he published reported increased performance on the 30-15 intervals when compared to traditional 4x5-minute intervals. This study gave us a good starting point on short interval stacking. That is a total time that ranges from 14 to 25 minutes within a single session, achieved by efforts of 15 to 30 seconds with a work-to-rest ratio of 2.1 or 1.1. And note these physiological responses are highly sensitive to the work-to-rest ratios. And that gives equal to or greater than 10 minutes at 90% of VO2 max. But a single study like this raises some questions, mainly around the subjects which were 20 amateur cyclists. But at the start of 2020, again, he published another study that once again compared the effects of the 30-15 training with four by five minute intervals, where they wanted to replicate their prior findings in more highly trained cyclists. This time, 18 elite male cyclists from national level road and cross-country cycling were recruited. After a three-week low-intensity, high-volume training phase, the short interval group performed three weeks of three weekly 30-15 interval sessions. These sessions consisted of 13 repetitions of 30 seconds of high intensity interspersed by 15 seconds of recovery at 50% of interval power. A total of three by 13 repetitions were undertaken in each session with a three minute recovery between each 13th repetition. The long interval group performed three weekly intervals of four by five minutes at below FTP. I think they define it as high intensity, but in the data, it shakes out to be just below FTP. Each interval was separated by two and a half minutes of recovery. This resulted in the short interval group achieving a greater improvement in power outputs during a 20-minute maximal effort test. This group achieved a 4.7 improvement in 20-minute power, which was significantly more than the long interval group, which displayed a 1.7 reduction in mean power. Note here that the VO2 max did not change in either of the groups. That being said, there was an increase of 2.6% in the short interval group and 0.9% in the long interval group that did not achieve statistical significance. So this study backs up the previous results of the 30 by 15 intervals. And even though it's hard to compare with the intensity of those five minute efforts and the changes aren't completely explained, I still think that they're a worthwhile addition to the training toolbox. The final part of the puzzle is when do you use these different types of intervals? And Steven Seiler has spent time looking at this. In an unpublished study, he has looked at the difference between eight minute intervals and 2040s to work out if it matters how the intervals are done if the work duration is the same. The cyclists were divided into three groups and did a four week training period. One group did three sessions a week of four by 12 by 40, 20 seconds. The second group did three sessions per week of four by eight by 40 by 20 seconds. And a third group did four by eight minutes. And I can't say why they chose to pick these durations, but I can speculate on why the sessions had a total of eight minutes of work. Eight minute efforts were shown in Seiler's 2013 study where they compared the efforts of three different formats of long intervals on 35 cyclists in a seven week training period where the cyclists were divided into four groups where there was a continuous training at low to moderate intensity. 
there were two weekly sessions of four by 16 minute intervals, two weekly sessions by four by eight minute intervals, and two weekly sessions of four by four minute intervals. And the results of that 2013 study show that the four by eight group displayed the greatest relative change in physiological capacity and across all parameters, such as an increase in threshold power of 16.2% compared to increases of nine, eight, and 8% for the other interval durations. And also VO2 max improved with 10.4% in the four by eight group compared to 6.5, 5.6, and 3.4 in the other groups. But back to when to use short interval stacks versus long intervals. There was no difference in the three groups in overall training effect after four weeks of high-intensity training sessions per week. In other words, they all got better on average, but there was no difference on how much they improved. So for now, it seems to be interchangeable when thinking about physiological adaptions. This is not to say there are other factors, especially ones that weren't tested here. I will say that there are many options here and long intervals and short interval stacks could work very well together. Stacking them at the right time could provide great results across the training spectrum. Now, if you've got this far, kudos. Let me summarize the take-home messages. To maximize the training effects on VO2 max, you have to add the right interval at the right time in your development and start with long intervals equal to or greater than two minutes, high volume equal to or greater than 15 minutes, and moderate to long term equal to or greater than four to 12 weeks of high intensity interval training. A good starting point is a total time that ranges between 14 to 30 minutes within a single session. This can be achieved by four to seven intervals of between two to five minutes, or try repeated short interval stacking with a total interval time that ranges between 14 and 25 minutes by efforts of 15 to 30 seconds of work with a rest to work ratio of two to one or one to one. And don't forget your eight minute efforts. Seems simple enough. I first brought up foam rolling in July 2012 on episode number two of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. Over eight years now, and back then, I was all about it and was sold on the benefits for everything from tight ITBs and other tight spot to range of motion work and that so good. So good. So good. What's changed in eight years? And if I was introduced to foam rolling now, would I even bother trying it? To answer these questions, I'll be pulling results from a meta-analysis from the journal Frontiers in Physiology from a research team at Ruher University in Germany is a meta-analysis of 21 different studies on foam rollers and roller stick self-massage devices. 14 of the studies used rollers as part of a warm-up and tested their effects on things like sprint and jump performance and flexibility. One thing clear about these, most of the studies measure things that have little to do with most cyclist training. Vertical leap and other explosive actions are not so important for our sport. That said, we can hone in on the studies that investigated flexibility, which is where we need to backtrack a little to understand what's important to cyclists performance-wise and how foam rolling can help. Foam rolling and stretching to an extent is really only about our range of motion because if your range of motion is limiting to get the most out of your type of cycling, then you need to work on it. And this is not really about flexibility as such. It's about, for example, being able to get into an aero position on a bike and staying in a powerful position for a long time. 
Okay, now let's get back to the meta-analysis. The results for flexibility after rolling was solid with a 4% improvement. And while this seems like good news, it's worth taking a closer look, especially because I think that I've stated this somewhere before, the thing with studying foam rolling is that it's pretty much impossible to run a blinded study. And short of knocking you out or detaching your legs, everyone knows if they've been rolled. And that may set expectations for performance and some outcomes like flexibility. So where does that leave us? Back in 2012, I was talking about foam rolling for myofacial release. And a systematic review from 2015 backs this up and says that foam rolling and roller massage may be effective interventions for enhancing joint range of motion. To add to this, foam rolling is the best way I know to target and release tension in the fascia, the cling film-like substance that wraps around all of our muscles. So it comes down to this. The evidence is a bit meh. If I was trying to convince you to use a foam roller for the first time, it would be pretty difficult at this stage. But if the goal is to actively extend your range of motion to eliminate specific constraints and you focus on relieving tension by rolling the fascia and targeting the main areas for power generation, the hip flexors, quads, glutes, or if you have trouble getting into a certain position or you don't have pain-free range of motion, foam rolling is still the best way to do this. This is not foam rolling to help you feel loose within your normal range of motion, but I guess it's okay just to admit we like doing it because it hurts so good. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. <laughs>